What if, when considering spiritual disciplines, spiritual habits or practices, we learned that love is the greatest spiritual discipline? And maybe, what would change if we understood that spiritual disciplines, spiritual practices, may be better practiced in community than privately? Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. I want to welcome you and thank you for joining in. It has been a couple of weeks, took a little bit of a summer break, and schedule's been a bit hectic, and some of those folks that I really want to talk to have not been as available. They're obviously taking vacations and take, taking some time away themselves. So we're getting back on track, and, and so thank you for your patience. I want to invite you to remember that you could leave us a review and a rating on iTunes and share the podcast as you find it helpful with your friends and help us spread the word. Today on the podcast, I'm having a conversation with Philip Nation. Philip is the Director of Content Development with the Resources Division of Lifeway Christian Resources. He's also the teaching pastor for the fellowship and assistant professor of leadership and biblical studies for Houston Baptist University. He has a master's of divinity degree from Beeson Divinity School and doctor of ministry from Southeastern. He is a frequent speaker in churches and conferences. He and his wife Angie make their home in Tennessee with their two sons. And you'll find that on the back of his new book, uh, the book that stirs our conversation today, Habits for Our Holiness. How the Spiritual Disciplines Grow Us Up, Draw Us Together, and Send Us Out. We'll have a, a link to how you can get a copy of the book at, in the uh, show notes or the blog post, uh, depending on where you're uh, listening to this podcast. And then some other ways that you can follow Philip as he continues to work out the implications of his uh, thoughts, ideas uh, surrounding the practice of spiritual disciplines. So again, I want to thank you for listening to the podcast today, and here's our conversation. Today on the podcast, I'm glad to have Philip Nation. Uh, Philip uh, wrote recently, Habits for Our Holiness, How the Spiritual Disciplines Grow Us Up, Draw Us Together, and Send Us Out. And uh, I want to uh, talk to Philip today uh, about, of course, his book, but more importantly, about some of the theological themes that he draws out as he walks us through the different, mostly classical spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices. So, Philip, it's good to have you on the podcast today. Thanks. It is. Uh, I think it's going to be a fun conversation. Yeah, I hope so. That's generally my aim. And, you know, uh, good conversations, uh, I think are, are really helpful and, and, you know, kind of the byproduct of having one in this setting may help people actually have good conversations. So uh, I'm, I'm, glad, exactly. I, I'm glad for that and, and appreciate uh, your interest in certainly talking about your book, but having a good conversation. So, um, you know, Philip, uh, one of the things that I, I wanted to start with is that you, as I mentioned, walk through what most of us would recognizes the classical spiritual disciplines, and there are a variety of them. And I'm wondering how your varied roles, uh, the hats you wear, uh, may correspond 
to your reflections on spiritual disciplines. Uh, you, you work at Lifeway, you teaching pastor at a church, you speak at conferences. So in what ways have those hats or experiences uh, pressed you to think about this subject as you have? Well, I think that there, there really is two streams that brought me to write the book and to think about spiritual disciplines from what I would consider a more missional uh, perspective, because oftentimes the spiritual disciplines are, are thought of in a very personalized, almost privatized kind of way, that it's what I do when I go into my prayer closet, and it's just me, and it's just me and God, or it's me and Jesus, me and the Holy Spirit, and, and then later on I'll come out, and, and hopefully it will have affected me in some way. And so working with uh, Lifeway Christian Resources, which is obviously kind of this behemoth of a, of a Christian publishing company, and we do conferences and all of this kind of stuff, it, it, it has oriented me to think more holistically about the life of the church. Uh, how, does, how would spiritual disciplines uh, play a role in a Bible study group or in congregational life to engage them into the life of their community. But I've been a pastor uh, of one sort or another, whether it was youth ministry or education ministry, um, ever since I was like 19 years old. I, I preached my first sermon when I was 17. And, and most recently over the last few years, the church that I serve here in Nashville is really, uh, I think, could be qualified as a comeback church. It's one that went through a great deal of pain and decline and had to find its footing again about how are we going to minister in our community and not just stay in an insulary kind of survival mode. And so you put those two things together and, and then just uh, a lot of random other stuff that I get to do. And it, it really propelled me in, in my personal journey about how the spiritual disciplines are for my benefit, but not just exclusively my benefit, but that as I engage in spiritual growth, uh, it should engage me in the broader mission of God of other people's spiritual growth. I think that's uh, quite helpful, especially for we pastor types to try to try to think um, of all the ways the varied roles we play. So maybe we aren't in your setting that could be. I don't know if it, it would fit the classic bivocational uh, kind of setting, but a, a lot of times pastors um, get really kind of tunneled and forget the variety of roles that they actually play in the life of church and community. And your description of uh, private uh, or personal and how it impacts uh, a, a wider uh, sphere is really important. I, I wonder, I think it was uh, Leslie Newbigin who pointed out that in the West, we uh, took personal and turned it private, and that faith was never intended to be private, certainly personal, but not private. Yeah, I think that's a brilliant um, statement, and, and certainly Newbegin is, uh, I, I should be credited for helping press a lot of us in that direction. 
because so much of what I found in even the literature about spiritual disciplines itself, which has been helpful to me that I got introduced to during my seminary days, but so much of it was just about that privatized faith about what's happening in your prayer closet. And so it's like, you know, one of the things that I, I try to remind myself and try to remind others is that if I find myself so deep in my prayer closet that I can't see the needs of the world, then I'm doing this wrong. Uh, but instead, that all of these disciplines ought to, they ought to enliven my, you know, my public ministry among friends in my neighborhood and people in my city not, you know, drive me toward kind of the pharisaical, you know, look how, look at how my theology has so well defined me differently from the rest of you people. And so it should be that personal, you know, depth that drives a, a public face of who Jesus is to the least of these and, and to the people who think they've got it all together, but really have got a very empty soul. Uh, I think, I think you're right uh, on a number of levels there, and I'm wondering that when we try to pinpoint uh, maybe the way we talk about spiritual practices and disciplines could have possibly um, been rooted in what we mean when we use the term holy or holiness. And so you you did kind of set things up to communicate that um, there is a there is and I, and I, I really try to shy away from you know pragmatics because we don't want to talk about spiritual uh, disciplines in terms of like functional they're going to make me into this thing because just like you noted and warned even I think a uh, second time in the afterward is that makes this sort of mechanical where where we, we really miss uh, our relationship with God and what really is developing when the focus is, you know, so which of these am I really good at? How many will I stay with? How often am I doing it? And I measure my own kind of progress really based on, you know, how it's working for me, not what is changing in me. Yeah, and, and as pastors and church leaders, I mean, that's the... That's the place where we find a lot of safety, which and, and a very comfortable Christianity that probably does not look very much like the New Testament is it's easy to make, you know, a list of boxes that you can check both for yourself and for the people that you are trying to lead in a congregation. And, and you know, you mentioned earlier, and you're exactly right, I, I don't have a normal kind of bivocational ministry. I, I meet real bivocational pastors that these guys are, they're plumbers or they're accountants uh, working in environments where it's not a, it's not like what I do where I also work at resource company. And, and then, and then even, you know, what you've got in terms of resources at church, a lot of those guys that are bivocational, they're on their own. Whereas, you know, we have other staff members at our church. And I think about those guys that are solo pastors, uh, all of the men and women that are serving in church leadership and in different fields and in different ways. And I think about I think about all the men and women that are serving in church leadership in one way or another. And the safe place 
where they can get to is to create just a list of do's and don'ts because then they've got these like physical metrics, but it is the, the more difficult route, but it is the, it is the more intentionally spiritual route to, to, to create what other people have called a new scorecard where what you're looking for is the development of the fruit of the spirit, the presence of empowerment and courage for ministry, the willingness to be hospitable to the outsider. Those are things that are harder to, to measure, but that really is more of what holiness is than just the, you know, here's this dividing light between dividing line between right and wrong of morality. And that's all there is to it. Whereas obviously the biblical picture of holiness is that it's a life that is other than what we see in the world. It, it is the countercultural, you know, kind of mode of the church in the world today. And so I do think that we ought to measure and say, how are we doing? But we can't just, you know, just boil it down to this really kind of blunt force trauma of how many days of the week did you do X, Y, and Z? And then I'm going to measure by your maturity by that. There is so much more to it. Uh, exactly. And, and I'm wondering, um, you, you, you worked in, and I just want to draw it out, make sure I understood kind of one of the emphases you were, were making there. And, and that is, we probably should think about holiness in relational terms rather than strictly in um, ethical terms. Yes. Um, <clears throat> where, what, what, what influenced you to kind of think about it that way? Well, there, you know, the ethics piece of it all, I think, is inclusive in a more biblical view of holiness. You know, one of the things that I try to draw out in in the book and then just in ministry in general is that I I think the grand themes of Scripture, and and these things are not, you know, original to me. Um, Lots of people have said it in lots of different ways, but I generally will say that that when you look at the grand themes throughout the Bible, what you wind up with is kingdom, covenant, and mission. And I think that our ethics play a role into all of those things, but those, but your ethics are not the sum total. And, and so what, what Jesus was not looking for was to make um, moral people. Uh, he, was made, he was looking to make dead people come alive. And, and so when we begin with the idea that we just want to help people be nice, I, I think that subverts really what, uh, if I can use the word again, the ethic of the kingdom is, uh, and in, in that we need radical transformation of our own souls, that we're not kind of sort of good people becoming much nicer people. It's that, you know, we're, we're kind of jacked up in a really serious way that that we need a radical transformation of who we are. We need a new identity, which is why God's kingdom, God's covenant, and God's mission really is so much bigger than just making a decision as to whether or not it's right or wrong that my company has been awful to me, and so am I going to skim a little bit off of this particular business deal or for even for us as church leaders— that 
the church has been somewhat, I feel like the, the congregation has been a, a little bit of abusive of my time and they've been overbearing. And so I'm going to stay home and I'm not going to do anything today. And basically, I, you know, I'm going to, I'm, you know, I'm going to get back at them one way or another, whether it's through an angry sermon or through just kind of lackadaisical leadership for a while. And so if you just boil it down to what's right and wrong, we can, we can, there's a lot of self-delusion there. And so holiness as a light that is other than what we know on this earth, that it's, it's defined by God's kingdom is a, is a much grander idea for us to enter into. Sure, it's not just other in the sense of whatever particular um, <clears throat> moral sensibilities I have have been changed. Um, when I first kind of uh, began reading a bit, because uh, it was later in Southern Baptist seminaries where the emphasis uh, moved to consider the spiritual discipline. So I must be just a shade older. And um, and so when I made these discoveries a little bit later, uh, one of the books uh, that I read on the, the subject of holiness uh, was recommended by Leonard Sweet, uh, and the title was Relational Holiness by Tom Ord. And uh, Sweet comes from, you know, a holiness background, a Wesleyan holiness background. And so when he says this was one of the most important books he's ever read on holiness. And Ord goes to great lengths to talk about holiness as relational, which is what you describe as a, a way of life different than what's in the world and not exclusively about these particular ethical uh, difficulties that we face when we come face-to-face with maybe we've been not treated so well um, we feel disadvantaged or we feel put upon. And so will we or won't we do something we might not normally do, albeit all those things are important to consider and be prepared how you'd respond to them. But when you start talking about um, the other and the move that's made to the other um, as a, a, a mark of holiness, uh, embracing the stranger and, and those those are particularly relational components that uh, are are uh, may derive from the fact that you've thought about the incarnation as you describe it in the book as being an illustration of God putting others' needs ahead of His own. Mm-hmm. Then that motivates me then to look around, and so my spiritual practice um, of maybe meditating or scripture reading or in prayer and that becomes the location where the Spirit speaks to me about that. It's not going to be enough to write about it or talk about it. I'm going to, I'm going to actually need to engage it. That lived-out thing becomes the holiness, not the idea. Right. I, and I, I think that, that just, what, just how you wrapped it up, that, that it is not just the idea. Uh, it, it's not some ethereal you know, bit of notion that we can grab a hold of. Because if we if we do that, then we just put ourselves back into the position of the Gnostics. And no matter where you fall on the theological spectrum, you know, all of us are are given over to being that again, that, well, I know something more about God's providence and sovereignty than you do. Oh, yeah. Well, I know something more about <laughs> God's social 
you know, care than you do. Oh, well, over here, I know more about, you know, the mysteries of these miraculous things than you do. And, and we turn our relationship with Christ into, you know, it's like a, a, a really, uh, you know, very childish religious game of trivial pursuit or jeopardy. And we're just all competing with one another to see if we can win the, you know, the heart and the affections of Alex Trebek <laughs> in, in some way. And, and so, you know, you mentioned Leonard Sweet and, and his traditions. There's so much to be gleaned from him. At, you know, and I'm a guy that I grew up Southern Baptist. Uh, I still count myself among that particular family of churches. Uh, but one of the best things that happened to me along this you know, journey that I've been on is that I attended an interdenominational seminary. I went to Beeson Divinity School, even though it's on the campus of Sanford University. I had professors that were Methodist and Anglican and Episcopalian um, and Presbyterian. And so, you know, it began to widen my view. And, and then because of the things I've gotten to do, I've been allowed to do in ministry over the last really kind of decade and a half, whether it be through conferences or working at Lifeway Research or doing other such things, I've had the opportunity to become friends with people that range from, you know, the Hillsong Church Movement and the Foursquare Gospel Church to the, you know, those that are in the, the Wesleyan headquarters I am way north of where I live or people that are in the Anglican Church of North America. And, and so I, I really do believe that when we enter into this conversation about the spiritual disciplines, if you make it a cloistered journey, you're going to actually impoverish your own soul. Whereas if you will make it about the relationship that you have with Christ that broadens your relationship to the wider body of Christ, then it enriches you so that you can truly see how God can speak and work and act in so many different ways through the various members uh, of the church. And so it is not just about a body of knowledge. It's about the people of the body of Christ. Yeah, I, I love the, I love that cloistered journey impoverishes your own soul. I, I have to say that um, I I came to that uh, awareness, uh, albeit a bit differently, to the same conclusions. And so, when I'm reading through your book and I'm noticing who you're referencing, and it's really hard uh, for anyone who considers any writing or reflection on spiritual disciplines, you know, to not think of Richard Foster, the Quaker, mm-hmm. uh, and his buddy, Dallas Willard. Right. And, and so, you know, when, when you find yourself um, kind of paying attention, you do understand that this particular area uh, to be explored has a breadth that that sometimes is eh, this may be a, a reach, but it, it seems that it's as broad as there are uh, theological perspectives or camps. Yeah, Maybe the better word, camps. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> I, I don't think that it. I don't think that is a stretch. I, and. 
And, and so granted, everybody is going to identify with whether you call it a perspective or a camp or a tribe. I think tribe is kind of one of the in vogue, you know, terms of the moment. Uh, you, you are going to wind up kind of staking your claim that, you know, within my particular in, in my best understanding of the scriptures, these are the people that I can learn from. And then there might be other sets of people that feel like they're on the periphery that I can learn from, but I feel like I need to filter a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it is really foolhardy for myself as a Southern Baptist uh, who I, that, I mean, obviously I feel comfortable in with the doctrinal statements that my church works off of. Otherwise I wouldn't be there. But I would be foolish to think that this classic book by Richard Foster that has stood the test of time, you know, and and has been around longer than I have walked the earth uh, is somehow I couldn't learn from it. And uh, and and there are great for me at times, there are great cautionary words in all of these books. One of my favorite quotes uh, from any Christian book is actually from Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy. Uh, that, you know, kind of beat me about the head and shoulders for a while until I could learn it better. And it's part of, you know, as we were talking earlier about, you know, how do you how do you not just fall into a metric centric kind of Christianity? And, and he said in The Divine Conspiracy that the gospel of sin management produces vampire Christians who want Jesus for his blood and little else. Yes. And I just love that because there's so much of what I have seen myself do in my own life, in my own leadership, and what I have witnessed in the church at large among Western Christianity, that it is just how can we just manage people's sin habits? And what you produce are people who all they really want is, you know, just the Jesus for salvation, and then I'll take it from here. And... And, and there's so much more, and that's why we need these voices that challenge us to a, a deeper understanding. I, I, I couldn't um, amen that enough. <laughs> I would say that the more um, people I encounter, talk to, who um, value uh, a breadth of voices— the one that often shows up is Dallas Willard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was uh, reading uh, Brian Zand's uh, book, Water to Wine. It was a, it's something of a memoir. Mm-hmm. And he, he remarks that when he uh, read Divine Conspiracy in, I think it's 04, 06, something uh, around there, it just did such a number on him that uh, he had to retool everything. And um, and it was those themes that you just described. Uh, I always liked his uh, uh, grace is uh, not opposed to effort; it's opposed to earning. And, yes. And yes. Uh, and so, um, one thing that that I wanted to maybe think about is one thing that that, that Willer did when he talked about uh, spiritual discipline, spiritual practices. Uh, he uh, once described the uh, 12 steps as probably the best uh, method of discipleship and spiritual 
and, and, the, and, the, and for the use of spiritual disciplines. I'm not asking whether or not you agree with that, but what I, I wonder as uh, someone myself who's been involved with a number of folks who have worked through addictions, that when we start talking about spiritual disciplines, spiritual habits, we have an ebb and flow about us. So there are days where uh, it just seems totally ripe and right that we're we're in a uh, a habit of prayer for a period of time, and then for whatever reason, schedule, emotion, experience, something, and we may look up and have been very faithful in prayer. For instance, to find ourselves, I really haven't spent a lot of time. And I learned something talking to a young fellow who, who came out of deep addiction, and it, and it was really hard for me to get through. And, and I'm wondering sometimes if, if Willard wasn't pushing um, uh, for, you know, for that, where normally I would have grown up thinking that if you just get your thinking right, then your actions are going to, <clears throat> you know, going to follow. And my addict friend said, well, while that's true, the person who's been addicted to a particular way or thing also needs to practice his way into thinking the right way. Hmm. So sometimes I wonder if uh, we aren't helped by the discipline part of these exercises such that when we experience those ebbs and flows, rather than spiritualize it, we recognize the moments at where we need to practice our way into maturity as well as thinking our way rightly into maturity. you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I think that, that we have set up at times, uh, you know, there, one side will say, you know, you just need to fake it until you make it. Just do the right thing and your heart and your head will come along. And then the other side will say, no, 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 you know, God wants your heart. He wants your head before, you know, you've got to get all of those things in the right space before you, you take a step in there, in there, you know, in action in the right direction, because otherwise it's just legalism. And, and what I'd like to say to my friends who try to stake their claim on either side is, well, yeah, both of those things are right, that there are going to be times where your your physical discipline or your mental discipline is just going to fail you. Mm-hmm. And, and so you are going to need external, you know, responsibilities and accountabilities to say, keep doing what is right and what is profitable to your spiritual growth and to your, to the health of both your mind and your soul. And, and without just abandoning the fact that you can though, choose to confess and repent that you can't, you know, and I would think that that is, that that's one portion of why uh, Dallas Willard would have, would have looked at kind of the 12 step program as, as a helpful model in that it, it gives accountability, but not in a vacuum, but it gives it in relationships that, that it's not just, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into this office. I'm going to go into this bedroom. I'm going to sit at my kitchen table, and somehow I'm going to be able to will myself forward when the fact of the matter is you're not. Uh, you are going to fail yourself. But 
those those other men and women that are in this in this fight with you you need them and they need you because you guys are going to have to lean upon one another when your actions fail you and when your heart fails you uh, that that you need your friends to not fail you and and you need them to play that role of comforter and compassion in your life that they are communicating the who the who the grace of of Christ can be for you and what you can then turn around and be for others. So I I take it as not an either or, but a both and. That there are times when you're just going to have to discipline yourself to do the right thing because your heart and mind fails you. And there are other times when, man, you can do everything. I mean, you've got the external pressures turned up to 11 in your life, but what you need is for your heart to come along. You need your heart to sing again. And, and so both of those things have got to uh, have got to be in step with one another, but very rarely will they. And so allow yourself the freedom that God is working on both the physical and the spiritual parts of your lives. I, I think that's one of the things that um, maybe I know every author looks for, you know, what's that thing that sets me apart? And I, I think the way you constructed uh, the book and the, the three kind of major themes that kind of guide. Uh, but, you know, I've, I've read a number, uh, Earl Kreps's Off-Road Disciplines mm-hmm. and, and, and a number. The one thing that I haven't seen that I, I did see show up um, that kind of grows out of what we were just talking about is you, you describe the practice of disciplines in community. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, it, it does probably harken back to our initial thoughts on private and personal, but but that's a dimension that that really is um, not often emphasized. Uh, because when we think of spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines, we think about um, my Bible study, my prayer time, uh, my fasting, uh, my praying, uh, my serving. But you you uh, make it a point to describe that that spiritual practices and discipline practices and disciplines should certainly have, um, uh, I don't know, a communal or a communitarian or a, a, a community aspect, um, because it, it's almost like um, it's almost like a shift that. Um, uh, is happening in uh, at seminaries, for instance. So, mm-hmm. um, you it, it was no problem for me in uh, the mid '80s to say, "Well, time to go to seminary, packing up and moving, leaving the place that I served, uh, the church that I was involved in. Uh, I was a volunteer, you know, I- involved in, in a number of things at the church. Uh, but it's time to go to seminary because then you go to seminary, you spend three years there, get all your stuff, and then you go find a church." And now, um, whether it's, you know, uh, whether it's a, a singular thing we can point to, uh, now seminaries are trying to uh, make themselves present to someone in a setting where they don't have to leave. So our Southern Baptist seminaries are doing uh, more distance-type uh, options. Uh, Northern Seminary, I know some folks at, are, are doing that sort of thing. Fuller does that. They all are moving to say, no, 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 no. You, we want you to learn while you're doing. 
And I think that sometimes the comp- the emphasis on uh, spiritual practice and disciplines in community is, okay, I'm practicing these things with, mm-hmm. and and not sort of in in isolation that could lead me to a little bit of spiritual arrogance, but I'm I'm in a setting such that when I'm I'm, I'm practicing these things, you may not intend, you may not have intended me to you know to read it this way, but I, I'm just thinking that that. Um, these practices in community actually provide a greater opportunity for me now than to go do the very things that uh, a maturing Christian would then go do in the world. No, I think that I think that's exactly right because it it may I mean you know you know to boil it down to just its most simplest idea it it makes us look more like Jesus mm-hmm. and and Jesus could have very well showed up on the earth and done everything he was supposed to do without the help of the 12 knucklehead apostles and all the rest of the people who surrounded him all the time. But he gives us this constant example of relationships and, and then builds the entire church on the whole idea that, that we need each other and that when I, uh, you know, when I falter, that I'm not going to fall in a pit on my own. And the spiritual disciplines, I, I, I would say that for me, the spiritual disciplines, that was maybe one of the most, uh, one of the greatest reasons as to why I wrote the book is for as much love as I have of all of the classic books about the spiritual disciplines, I think consistently it is that, that they they miss an opportunity to drive home the deeper need for relationships mm-hmm. and, and only when they deal with the idea of service and submission, do, do they then kind of dip into a deeper end of the pool of how important relationships are to spiritual disciplines. And I, I, I just think that they are inherent to all of the spiritual disciplines because of what I see of the people of God within the Old Testament, the New Testament, and throughout all of history, is that that the people of God who engaged in the worldwide mission of delivering grace and mercy and justice and good news, that they were doing it together rather than being on a solo journey. And and then just my own personal reflection. You know, I, even as a pastor, I find myself to be a a much better shepherd and teacher and guide to my to the people that are that I am entrusted with as a pastor when I've got healthy relationships um, going on in my life that are spurring me on to these love and good deeds. But when I find when I look back through the lens of the last few decades of ministry, when I was isolated, either by intention that I can do this on my own or by what felt like a weird accident of life of I just don't have any really close friends right now. Those are the places where I struggled the most. And, and so all of us need to enter into these spiritual disciplines in, in the context of healthy relationships to guard ourselves against pride, to help us when we fall down, uh, to and, and it simply broadens your understanding of how God is at work through prayer, through fasting, through these disciplines, and not treating them like 
levers that, God, I did this, so you need to bless me. But rather, it is watching how God grew someone in the midst of our fasting together, our, our service in the community together, that it keeps the focus upon this is what 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 God does in us and what God does through us, not what I've convinced him to do because I did a good deed today. And so the relationship piece is is critical for me and, and then very naturally leads toward how it helps us to live on mission through the disciplines. And that's exactly where I was uh, going to point because <clears throat> I think in that moment then we actually can maybe settle a little more uh, consistently on how that shapes us f- as a people on mission mm-hmm. and involved in the mission of God. And I, I like you, I, I grew up Southern Baptist. I uh, still claim that tribe. Uh, and, and I remember, uh, you know, the, the plural missions mm-hmm. and, and, and I don't think it was in, an intentional thing to use a plural that sometimes seemed that we were divided in our allegiances uh, or allegiance because there was this mission and that mission and that mission because it never was necessarily brought together kind of cohesively as like say Wright, uh, Christopher Wright did in the, you know, his book on the mission of God. And, and I think that that has been, also a very helpful uh, emphasis in your book to draw uh, attention that this isn't um, uh, a a pragmatics of of necessarily how just to be a better person. It is actually a preparation for always being alert to the mission of God and our role in it. Mm -hmm. And and, and I I think that's really a, uh, as you noted, I think that's probably... Uh, one of the uh, elements that sets your apart book, your book apart, rather than being just a rehashing of classics. Well, um, well, thanks, because that that certainly was the intention, uh, and 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 not everybody who has um, your experience and my experience would perhaps as well be alerted to what does happen when there is this language barrier? Cause it seems so small because it's just one single letter. It's an S, but there is a, there is a great delineation by what we would often mean between missions and mission. Uh, in, like you said, the Christopher Wright, who has helped to refine the idea for, for you, for me, a lot of us, because missions always, it, it what it turned into was it was always somewhere else. That was those other people, and that was that other place that we would we would go and we would do our you know our ministry tourism to those people, you know drop off a little package of grace, uh, you know, uh, and and then we would return back uh, to our insulary lives. Whereas when you see the spiritual disciplines of your own personal growth as inherent and intrinsic to the mission of God, then it helps to reset your own identity that we're, we are sojourners in a foreign land. We're ambassadors. It, it reframes how I see myself 
and my identity in Christ, along with that that the mission of God is not for the person that I'm just going to take this to the other side of the world, but rather the mission of God is so that I can grow up in such a way that I can have an effect and an impact of grace in, in every sphere of my life, work life, home life, with the homeowners association, with, you know, my kids' baseball team. Uh, and, and so that, that mission of God becomes very inclusive to everything, that God's not just sending me on mission once or twice a year for the church activities, but that it is his intention that in all places and at all times, that as I'm growing up, I am communicating his grace through my words and my actions. So I, I do think that the spiritual disciplines lived out in my own life help me mature into it and lived out in my own life, help sign, help create a signpost for other people about who God is. Yeah, and I think that um, you, you describe, as you're describing that, you also, I think, um, intentionally or unintentionally, uh, help people think about how the mission of God uh, has been uh, divided and turned into a competition. And so I think maybe I'll title the podcast Philip Nation and Inclusive Baptist. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's a clickbait title to be sure, but here, here's what I'm aiming at. I'm, I'm saying yeah. this, that, that I think um, the other thing that the S does on the end of missions is then set up some competitions that, well, Philip's church is doing mission better than my church. Or... Um, even in the same community, um, the Baptists are doing it better than the Methodists, or the Baptists are doing it better than the non-denominational church. So the S tends to divide us uh, in, in, in those patterns of thinking as well. So not just as a, uh, those people there in that place over there. It, it actually, I think, fosters some of the... Um, uh, unspoken competitions among even Baptist congregations. Such, well, such oh, that... Oh, you, no, you surely know, not. So, surely Baptists are not in competition. Oh, with I forgot. I'm, I meant in competition <laughs> with other denominations. That's what I really meant, Philip. <laughs> well, I, no, I think you're right. And so missions becomes a great term when we are trying to systematize things and put them in the right buckets um, and, uh, and, and we, and, and we are, and we give ourselves the temptation. We put it in front of ourselves, uh, to not engage in the mission, which is holistic of the entire life of the church and the Christian, uh, because we're busy, you know, finding where the missions of our church calendar fall and do they fall in line with my work schedule or not. And I can or can't do these missions, and it gives me an out from doing the mission of God because I can't do the missions of my church calendar. Yes. And, and that, and there's this huge danger there. And you're right. And then it becomes the competition of, uh, you know, it's the water cooler talk that good Christians do at work. Of well, this weekend we went to the soup kitchen. Oh well, this weekend we went and ministered in such and such community. Oh yes. well, you know, last week I went on a mission trip to Haiti. Um, and, and then it's the one-upmanship, and that has, and that's the antithesis 
of the relational spiritual disciplines that I think we're called to. I, I think so. And so I, I'm, I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning of the book as we, as we bring our time to an end. And, and that is, is that, is that the only quibble, and, and I'm, I think probably I'm just manufacturing a quibble, by the way. Um, <laughs> but my only quibble is, is, is you have a, a line um, that uh, in, oh, I think it's in the first chapter, that, that, that one of the, the aims is for people to see the joy that we have, and that then draws them. I don't, I don't, I don't object to the idea that you know people see other people living joyously. It does, you know, provoke curiosity and and and, and a, such maybe to the degree that someone would even ask or inquire. But you then follow it quickly um, with really. I think you're doing this. This one, I want you to tell me. I okay. think really you're you then move to talk about love. Mm. And so I, I think that, um, again, my, my quibble is a bit manufactured just to say, come on, Phil, there was at least one thing wrong with the book. Um, <laughs> uh, they all can't be perfect, although I, I think you've done a fantastic job. I, I just I would want someone to pick up that you move from joy to love and that love really is the thing that produces joy because then you talk about God pursuing us out of his love and that the result of God pursuing us out of his love actually is what evokes love from us for him. And that the outworking of that is the produced joyous life that is in, enhanced and um, magnified by the uh, community practices of spiritual discipline. D- did I hit that maybe right? No, I think you did. I, yeah, no, I, I, I won't argue with your quibble. Uh, and uh, it, because you are right, I, I think that I probably use it a bit of a, of a MacGuffin at the beginning to try to uh, give the reader something that they're trying, it's, it's something elusive, because uh, joy is a relatively elusive uh, idea that we talk a whole lot about. I mean, Right now, as I, as we're recording this, I've got a, an 18-year-old son who is uh, recovering from having his wisdom teeth extracted, and he's sitting in another room in our house, binge watching uh, the the sitcom The Office. <laughs> uh, you know, because he's looking for some level of joy yeah. in his life yes. at, at <laughs> the moment. Um, and so, all of, I mean, that that is that thing that people are looking for. And, and so you're right. It, it, it is the elusive, it's going to come and go. But what I did want people to get to was ultimately, you know, the foundation is, is love. And I even say in the book that I think that love is the central discipline of the Christian life. Uh, I don't want anybody to walk away from my book or Richard Foster's book or the scripture itself thinking that somehow these spiritual disciplines uh, are, you know, are, are buttons that they can push that turn God into a cosmic traffic cop or, a, you know, as some kind of divine Santa Claus to make him do cool stuff for you. Uh, but rather love is the, that his love drawing us to himself it is is the great change. It is it is the great thing. It, it, it's what you want, and uh, and then 
that produces in us then the ability to love him in such a way that we will grow in these things and, uh, and, and engage other people to think about the love of God as well. So I, I think you hit it, and I appreciate it. Well, and I need to say, I think you did that. Uh, I, 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 I do think you did that. I mean, there, there, isn't, a, there isn't a clear place where um, I, I, don't, I, I don't have the quote off the top of my head where you clearly say that the other things we talk about when we talk about God, because today justice is such a uh, um, emphasis, and my personal conviction is I, I don't think we know. I think it's it's the Nigo Montoya. You keep using that word, but I don't think you know what that means. <laughs> I don't means. think you understand what it means. Yeah, yes. and and I and and so you made it clear that that. Uh, love is is the fulcrum. It is that is that thing around which the, these other activities uh, turn, and mm-hmm. and a, and as such, I think that really is important in a day where um, we could spend another hour talking about the way we divide up the actions of God, so that we can emphasize the ones that we prefer, rather than talking about the nature of God as being love that drives the activity of the good news in Jesus. And, and so I, you did that. Thank you. And, um, again, I just had to make up some quibble. <laughs> well, and I get it. And, uh, and, and it's a worthwhile quibble to have uh, in, in this conversation. But it is what I would want people to, to get launched out with and to be left with, and that is, uh, that the greatest discipline is love, and and all of the rest rest of the disciplines should flow from that love, so that we can both express and experience uh, what the love of Christ is. Well, you did, and I'm glad. And I'm going to make sure uh, in the notes of our podcast to have your book there. Is there uh, anything else or another place that you? Uh, if folks wanted to kind of connect with you, follow you, I, I know you're on Twitter and Facebook, and and um, is there any you have a, you have a, a blog, website, or anything that that you could tell us that uh, maybe you do some writing or some other thinking on that that someone might want to you know keep up yeah. with you? Yeah, if they want to keep up with me, obviously uh, those places that you've mentioned, Twitter and Facebook, are the are the place. Uh, that where I post most frequently and, and maybe abuse a bit like lots of others. Uh, but, but my blog site, it's philipnation.net. And uh, I took a break for the summer, like a lot of guys do, a lot of uh, guys and gals do. And so I'm going to be ramping it back up. Uh, and, and I post there two or three times a week about these issues and then just some silly things along the way just to, that I find entertaining that I think a few other people do along the way as well. Uh, but would love for people to to check out the book Habits for Our Holiness and and then to to see how I extend the conversation uh, at the blog site. So thanks. Well, you bet you, Phil. We'll have those uh, out there and available, and uh, I hope maybe we uh, spur some sales along the way. Well, thanks so much uh, for the conversation. Yep, thanks for your time, Philip. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, man. Have a great day. You too. Hello, thanks again for listening. This is Todd Littleton. Remember, this is Pathological, the podcast for the pastor-theologian, where we explore the themes of life and faith at the intersection of pastoring and theology. I want to always encourage you to uh, interact with the content on these podcasts. You can do so over the blog post and the comment sections. Shoot me an email at 
doc period todd at gmail.com. And I'd be uh, excited to have some conversations, some ongoing conversations about these various uh, subjects that we raise with our guests. You know, we also uh, want to let you know that uh, Pathological is an affiliate podcast with Roundtable Media Group. There are a, a number of podcasts there that I'd encourage you to listen to. We've got a new one. Uh, when Heaven and Earth Collide by my friend Alan Cross, where he tackles and talks about uh, issues of immigration, racial reconciliation, and poverty, and how the church and uh, Christian people might be involved in uh, bringing uh, shalom or peace uh, in the midst of those particular circumstances. If you'd like to advertise uh, there at Roundtable Media Group, shoot me an email at todd at roundtablemediagroup.com. And if you happen to have a podcast that you'd like to uh, uh, get going on uh, or with Roundtable, uh, also send me an email, and we'd uh, love to get you uh, uh, as part of our our network. Uh, If you have been thinking about uh, putting together a podcast, we can help you get started. And you just, uh, again, send us an email. Again, uh, this has uh, been Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. And until next time, peace. Thank you.